Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media and production. Uh, second hour, same thing today. <laughs> so, so this is a Thanksgiving. It's a holiday weekend, a holiday week for us. And so we're, we decided to take it a little bit slower, uh, give ourselves a little bit of a break. And so these are two hours of Q&A. So if you've got questions, we have a, an excellent panel, a very, very knowledgeable panel today. So uh, if you've got questions, go ahead and throw those in. You can throw them into Makana and vote on those questions. Uh, or you can go to askofficehours.global. You can use that little QR code there. That's askofficehours.global. Um, and you can ask your questions there um, and uh, just, just throw them in and we'll feed them into the system as we go. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitch, what do we have? And first one in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. My main computer is a Mac Mini M1 is showing notices that the computer was infected. And I installed the AT&T security suite, which was provided by my AT&T fiber. Is that good or should I install something else? Go ahead, Nigel. So I guess it depends what these notices are. That would be my first question, because I would be suspicious of notices arriving in email or pop-ups or something that they may be somebody fishing or doing something else. So it really depends on what those notices and where they're coming from. That's the first question. I, I do run ESET. I, I make sure that I do it once a, a week on all my Macs. Invariably, it doesn't find anything. Um, and it, it's, it's really not a problem, but I'm just completely paranoid about these things. But I, I really think we need no, to know more about the messages. Go ahead, Chris. Um, Tony, I will tell you, I have for the last uh, uh, three days or so, I have been getting a ton of security warnings and flashes. Like this was what I woke up to the other day um, when when I turned on one of my computers. I have no idea what's going on. And then uh, last night, I got something on my phone and it was like, bro, you have 25 viruses and you should really click on this. And I was like, those things are just super sketch to me. I normally just ignore all that stuff. So I either I'm being very careful or I have a ton of viruses on all my gear. Well, the only question I have is those, the notifications that you have there, those are generated by the OS, aren't they? The ones that you have going down the side? They are. That's a hack. That's a hack. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's a hack. That, there's something very wrong for you because if it's you know it's one thing for it to be a pop up. It's another thing to be a if you have a if you if you have a uh, system generated uh, alert, then that's something to probably pay attention to. Um, yeah, because that's what would you recommend I do? Call your I would call the Apple Store. <laughs> like like literally like what does this actually mean? Or do some searches. But you're in a like I would not I would run not walk to someone who can I've never seen those those messages before ever, um, and for them to come from the system is a problem. Like it is a huge problem for the for you to have a long line of it going. Hey, you know something's going on with your iCloud account because the iCloud account can be hacked. So if it's if it's throwing if it's throwing errors from the system, that's different than having a pop up window. You know the system system doesn't tell you wrong things generally. Um, so I would definitely be worried about that. I wouldn't be worried about what Tony, I don't know if I'd be worried about what Tony's worried about, but I'm really worried about what you, it's kind of like when I showed a video of a scorpion in my kid's bathroom and someone said, well, you shouldn't worry, it was fighting a spider. And someone said, you shouldn't worry about the scorpion. You should worry about the fact that a black widow is attacking it. And, you know, so you're kind of in that situation. Like, don't worry about the, don't worry about the, what we were talking about. Worry about the fact that you, you, a system is telling you something is a big deal. 
Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Jeffrey. So basically um, with the AT&T, well, first of all, it, AT&T and Mac, they're, they're always going to clash back and forth. They want to have that, that uh, total control of your security. So there's, there could be a problem there. There could also be a problem with another program that's getting in the way that uh, AT&T, this uh, security suite is starting to uh, say, hey, you know, this is the problem, but it doesn't really see it because of all this other security that it has to uh, that it has to uh, delve through. So the first thing I would do is update your security suite. If you want it, you don't need it. Uh, but if you feel comfortable with it on, put it on there. Um, if you have another antivirus on there as well, then you want to have one antivirus, not two. Simple as that. Uh, and of course, there are certain web pages. That, even on my iPhone, I'll get. Uh, I'll, uh, there's one website I go to, and every now and then, it'll pop up with uh, with messages saying, "Hey, this is a virus. Download this. Uh, download this file." So if that's happening, then just back out of the page. Don't click on anything. Other than that, uh, and if it is all web pages, just close out. Come back in. Make the updates on your web browser. Make the updates on the security suite, and then assess what's on the computer to see that you don't have two uh, two programs in conflict. Yeah, I I wouldn't I I guess I I don't know where the eight did the AT&T thing. I I'm not clear where it came from. Did you install it on purpose or did it actually it, install it? It comes so, with when you get AT&T fiber, they say, "Hey, you should install the security." Yeah, you should never install well. that. You should never let AT&T onto your computer. Like don't, you know, that's cr- it's crazy talk. Like to allow AT&T to be on your computer. I know that they, they tell you you should. You don't need that. You have a router. You put a router, you put your router on the other end of that router, and then you have, and then you're done. Like, you know, like, like don't, don't allow, don't allow the cable networks to have any access to your computer. That is a, that is not a good idea. This is not their business. Like, it's not, you know, your computer is not their business. You should never, ever, ever install something from a cable provider onto your computer. <laughs> like, just period. Like, that's crazy talk, you know, for Mac, for Mac user, for PC user, I don't know. I mean, but, but for Mac user, don't 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 let them. It is so secure inside of that computer in general uh, that you know there's no reason to allow a third party and definitely not hacks like cable companies um, to have access to your computer. There, mu- it's much more likely that they'll pr- produce a flaw that lets somebody in than Apple. Um, next question. Next question in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, where are you seeing some tempting Black Friday deals? Are these deals mostly for consumer shoppers? Nigel? Uh, I always offer my uh, annual Black Friday warning, beware of special deals, because sometimes there are special products for special deals, particularly where hardware, you'll find PC manufacturers invent products uh, for this season. Beware of the components that go in such things. Best deals, typically software, people offering 40% off, 50% off, you'll find waves. I'm sure other people will tell uh, that. Uh, I am eyeing for some of my colleagues, the Elgato Prompter, which I think would be a very... uh, cheap way to get some of my uh, my work colleagues to look much better uh, without having to build a whole studio. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Nigel 100%. Uh, it's a conspiracy wrapped up in enigma. It's uh, They've used every term that they can. And yes, it is a consumer-driven uh, product. It's supposed to be the first Friday after Thanksgiving here in the U.S. of A., uh, but now they're stretching it every which way they can. Um, I would say, for the most part, I ignore it completely. Go, Bill. Consumer shoppers are what Black Friday deals are about. This is uh, 
having worked in retail and in advertising for the retail industry, often companies make a significant portion of their yearly sales during the pre-Christmas and Christmas lead-up season. So they are dead serious about competing, and discounts are one of the ways they do it. It's also really convenient, too, because a lot of them who are on calendar years want to flush out old inventory because they've got new models and new things coming from the thing. The other, the third part of this tripod of reason to do sales is that they want to. They want new models coming out, and they want um, the first of the year for companies who do a calendar fiscal year. They want their first of the year budgets to go to their products. So there's a lot of things in the retail chain pushing on sales at the end of the year around Christmas time, Black Friday. They used to call it Cyber Monday for the digital stuff. But you're going to see this from everybody who has your email address for the next month. It's just how the retail industry works. Go, Brandon. Yeah, I mean, like one of the things for me, like every year, this is the time of year where I try and replace all of my hard drives and memory. And so I think, you know, some of the best Black Friday deals are always going to be, you know, new SD cards, new SSDs. Uh, I'm a really big fan. Um, Samsung just came out with their T9 drives. They're super reliable, super fast, and you can get them for a really good deal. Um, And it's, you know, as a creative, one of the things that we always kind of overlook is, you know, making sure you have new fresh media um, because the last thing you need is a memory card to go bad. And this is your annual reminder, tying it in with Black Friday to remember to uh, go, you know, grab some new memory cards. Brandon, I think that's your first answer here on the panel. Welcome. There you go. (laughs) What do you, what do you do? uh, So um, primarily work in like content creation, um, you know, social media stuff. Uh, Previously was just on a presidential campaign. So, you know, constantly moving at a thousand miles an hour and creating stuff uh, in as close to real time as possible. Um, so just kind of starting to dip my toes into like live production and that sort of stuff. So That's it's great. a lot of fun. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to, welcome to the panel. Hoping, hoping to see you often. Oh, yeah. uh, go, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Welcome. But now you got me thinking. You said you were just on a presidential campaign. No, no, no. We don't talk about politics here. We don't talk about about politics on here. It's it's all good. It's all good. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, uh, next next question. Next question is from David Brady in New York, New York. Outside of uh, companion web buttons, are there any facilities using maybe Arduino and a Wi-Fi shield to set up a remote button interface where I can empower talent to drive certain aspects of a production. Uh, Go ahead, Jeff. Well, you could go lightweight with something like the Universe implementation here with Isadora and a lot of time spent or bribes to talk either one. Uh, But the other option is to use something that's freely available and relatively inexpensive, depending on which version you go with, is a a little app that a, a friend of mine found called Touch Portal. Touch-Portal is their website, touch-portal.com. Similar to like using the Stream Deck app only, but it's a lot more powerful and not having to be in the Stream Deck uh, world. So I'd have look into it. Uh, Scarhoy has libraries that are available for Arduino. They started out by making those libraries available. Um, and uh, and so you can get Arduino controllers from Scarhoy, uh, and those are free. Um, they, they, they kind of, they've open sourced a lot of those. And so those will go onto your Arduino, and then it's just a matter of figuring out your interface. 
What we did for some of the studios that we built is we had exactly the problem that you had, which is that we have some civilians that are going to be sitting there and they need to be able to push buttons. We don't want them to think about anything other than what we want to give them. And so what we did is we built a button system that was with etched metal. So it was literally because, you know, if you, with us, if you spend $100,000 on your studio, we'll give you an etched metal <laughs> controller for it that we built for you. Um, anyway, so it comes for free. Um, anyway, so what we did is we... Um, we etched the metal of like a person and then two people. So the first person was the you, and then there was two people. That's the wide shot. And then we had a computer that you could push the button and it would be a computer. And, and there was one other one. I can't remember. I think it's black, you know. So we had these and we made these nice little icons for them. And we sent them off for, I don't know, it probably cost us 800 bucks to have them all etched out and put together. And we put together this little box and they loved it because the, the, um, the, the, the guests who came in, just all they had to do is hit the button, you know, hit the button that looks like what you want it to look like. And they were etched with, um, they were etched and then we put a piece of glass behind them so that, you know, they'd light up when you hit them. Um, and, uh, and then we tied those into an Arduino, which then tied into an ATEM switcher. And uh, it was very, very popular um, to make that happen. But you can have it tie into anything. You can have it send commands out. But I highly recommend this kind of designed look, um, you know, for it, especially if it's on a higher end solution. These aren't that expensive. I mean, they're not, 10 bucks, but they're also not, you know, more than $1,000 to build one of these. And so if you're building kind of a nice thing, it's really a great add-on to make things look nice. The, um, uh, the other thing that we did is for less money, we just printed them. So we would print out ones with buttons on them. We had one that was a big red button. We had a client that they were, it was during a draft and they were like, if we need to talk to someone, I want to hit the button. I want to be able to hit the button and I want to cut away from all cameras. So we tied that button with an Arduino again into the ATEM so that it would just go to a media player and, and cut off all the audio follows video, hits, hits the thing and everything turns off so they can talk amongst themselves and then hit the button again, or we turn it back on once they say it's okay. So anyway, the point is, is that you can build those really custom solutions. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of extra work. And it takes a little time to get it working. And those little extras have people thinking about you all the time. <laughs> go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, I wanted to go back really quick on Jeff's uh, touch portal uh, thing, just to keep in mind that the license is actually, last time I used it, license actually lives on the device, not on the, uh, on the computer. So if you forget the uh, tablet, then you'll have to get another license for it, just so you know. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, way back when, when I was uh, searching for muting capabilities, um, I tried to figure out how to get an Arduino to talk to an ATEM. I wasn't aware you could do that. You had to use a Scarhoy uh, in in front of the or on the other side of the Arduino. So I'm we very interested to hear it's how you Scarho did that. We used the Scar. We used Scarhoy's libraries for the Arduino. You don't need to use the Scarhoy itself. Uh, we were able to just use a Scarhoy library. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, the Scarhoy actually talked through the network and show itself as a device to, as a control device to the ATEM is how that basically works. So it logs in over the network. Uh, I, I'd be remiss in, in saying, I'd be definitely, without a doubt, uh, central control is worth looking into also. Uh, it runs on a PC, so you can throw a little Nook down or a B-Link or something small uh, instead of the, which I prefer, versus going the uh, Pi or the Arduino route, unless you really got the chops for it. Uh, a small PC is just a lot easier to maintain. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida has a question. How would you teach students composition within the frame? I go ahead, uh, Chris. Um, part of me would argue that you really can't teach our composition 
you can give people, you know, mathematical suggestions, you know, rule of third and looking space and things like that. But there's certain subtleties that come in, in framing that you either see it and you don't. And that's why you pay camera operators really large amounts of money. If you're just shooting a talking head, yeah, you can make a framer and say, put your face in the hole, whatever. But when it comes to real composition, you know, at, a, you know, a photographic or cinematic level, I would argue you, you almost can't teach it. Go ahead, Mitchell. And um, I would say the rule of thirds is the one thing you could uh, teach anybody that's doing the frame up. It's just an old rule and an old uh, uh, thing that uh, once you've taught that, you make them think more about what works and what doesn't. Go, Bill. You may not be able to teach it, but you certainly can make people aware of it. So I, I think I learned most of my early charts from an art history class where they broke down old paintings and things like that. But you start to see the sense in it and you start to say, I really like the way this painter Rembrandt or whomever, arrange these three people. Why? What is it about that? And then you start understanding that, okay, there's really a central place for my eye to hit first, and then it goes over here, and then it gets the detail down here. And it's a satisfying experience to look at that. Um, but I agree with Chris to this certain – you can't really teach it, but you can make people aware, and then their sensitivity to that awareness can help them practice that and use the rule of thirds and the Fibonacci sequence and the rest of those technical things to kind of suss it out for themselves. I use one scene. <laughs> so I used to teach this. I had to teach it. I had a, I had a, I had a you know, we were in my, in my classes that I would teach um, a long time ago. I would teach – and I used one scene to teach uh, – uh, camera framing uh, specifically, and we'll probably get flagged for this, but I don't think we'll get a strike. Just in case you went to Jeffrey, and I'm I'm fine to keep it in as long. Why as do I only, know what you're going to show? As long as it's only flagged, I don't really care. Um, so anyway, uh, so this is. Hold on, let me make sure I'm obscuring everything that needs to be obscured here. Um, so this is the sequence that I use to do framing classes. Um, so this is. So this is a master's course. So, so the first thing I talk about here is see how his frames over here. This is your center. This is the center of your frame, and he's going to come in here. You're leaving an open space for him to follow, follow right in here, and fill the space. So watch, watch how that how that works there. So he's going to he's going to walk in and he's going to take that other part of the frame right there. There he is. So he fills that frame there, and that was you know that was um, you know obviously designed. So now we're going to do a reveal. And we come, we come all the way across the frame, and then we're going to open. That's going to open this side of the frame. So you're going to, you're going to, you, you've now moved Morpheus to the other side of the frame by using that 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 pan move. So here he goes. And now watch also watch the angle of his eyes because that's going to have to ma match it as he as he looks at it. it. Has to look like he's looking up at him. So here's his his angle down. He's taking this side of the frame. While Neo was on this side of the frame, Show me. there's your reveal. So now he's on the same side of the frame that he was in before. So he's he's still he's still maintaining that frame in, inside of this reveal. And this is a reveal. Notice how the pan keeps moving over to re, to allow him to open his arm. You know, in that in that process there. Now it's slowly moving in. Watch watch how it's slowly pushing in. So that this slow push in creates intensity. So this is this is what they're doing there. See how they're pushing in, pushing in. Now it's close. 
he is in, is intensely looking at what's actually going on, concentrating. That's what the, that's what the story is telling. He is, you've got a lower angle shot. He's still on this side of the frame, still pushing in, but that lower frame gives him more superiority than it gives to Neo. See, Neo, Neo's got a slightly higher angled camera. That gives him less superiority inside of that, inside of that process. Now we're going to, so now watch how much intensity we get. Neo is intense and ready to go. Now also watch how they framed him. They've used up the entire wide angle frame. So he's, they're not, if they came straight on, they wouldn't be using it up. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're pulling in that whole frame. Now watch this one. This is going to pull back because he's in control. He, he controls his environment and that's why the, the pullback. Now you have an establishing shot to tell you this is where they, they've shown you what the entire scene looks like here, which was actually built, which I thought was pretty impressive. Now he's coming in, still on his side of the frame, but they're going to cross frame, right? But they have to do it. What you'll notice is they did it. So now Neo has taken the other side of the frame and Morpheus, watch this. This is just a beautiful shot. So see how he's, again, used up this whole frame here, and it'll get, it gets even better. So then you have – sorry, I hit the wrong button. So here's the intensity again coming in. He's, he's excited. Just an amazing picture that they've created there of him, of him doing it. Anyway, I could do that for a long time. In fact, that whole sequence. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I've, I, that's, this, is, this is the class that I used to give on framing. Um, and so, and, and, you, and there's so many things. There's, there's very few times where you have one scene that, that you can sit there and talk about almost every framing technique and almost, it's not just framing techniques, but framing moves, you know, in that process of, of, of how they're moving in to increase intensity, how he's pulling back. I mean, it's a very, very designed shot. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, Alex, you know, I, I've said this to you before, but I think one of the greatest pieces of media for me that you've ever created was your Road to 1080p. And if, if anybody it's hasn't the most seen viewed, that... Second, the second most viewed thing I've ever done, too, so it's really it, funny. You should definitely go see it, and Alex, you need to redo it. Um, j j just the, the, the stuff about keying is really spectacular. Yeah. And when you said, oh, oh I'm going to show this thing, and I'm like, I'm rolling my eyes going, oh, what is Alex doing now? What is this going to be? That was brilliant. It was that was a lot more than framing, though. That was also camera moves. Camera moves, yeah. That was e the editing. That was really interesting. It's you know, it I, should I, be clipped. And somebody needs to clip this and place just that little bit. We'll, we'll see if we and get flagged. I, I should just do it as a separate me. video. <laughs> you should add the part of me in it too, where I say how great Alex was. I'll but do it as a separate put video that on the internet. We'll do. We'll, we'll put that on. We'll, I'll do we the whole put, thing. We should share the rest this of the scene with more people. Yeah, exactly. Um, just take I, the red pill. Anyway, but that's, I, I, I would go through that entire scene. That was, I used to do this weekend course on joining the Pixel Core. Joining, like, you know, office hours, you just have to kind of show up. This was like, hey, you want to join the Pixel Core? It's two weekends and a, and a Friday. And so, um, uh, and this was part of the, the film course. We'd go, we, we would do breakdowns from different films and so on and so forth and, and stuff I haven't put on the internet because you usually get flagged or, or you usually get strikes. I bet you that'll just be a flag. Because that one I took off of YouTube. So if that one can be up there, then mine can probably be up there. So anyway, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take a look at that. I'll, I'll try to put that whole thing together um, because it's uh, – obviously I've done it a couple times. So um, anyway, uh, it's uh, – uh, but that's how I, that's how I teach composition. Uh, next question. 
And it's from David Brady in New York, New York. During my Sunday Place program, services begin with the ringing of a bell. I have the stream up and running a few minutes prior with overlay and mic muted. Any creative ways to listen for that first bell and activate the automations to go live? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you could definitely listen for an impulse. You could have a mic. So, I mean, you could have a mic near, near the bell that when you ring it, because nothing else is going on, it should be quiet. An impulse over a certain volume, I mean, is, I mean, if you want to get creative, could trigger something. I mean, obviously that could be done in Isadora, but that could probably be done in a variety of different things. If when I hear a volume that's over this, and you can probably with most of these bells, they're going to be in a very specific, that bell is going to have a certain tone to it. Um, and when you, uh, when you hit it, it's going to be the same tone every time. So you could probably clamp that bell um, to, a, uh, to a specific frequency. Um, or a, a, a range of frequency, probably a couple hundred hertz of, of range, and you're going to be, you know, right on for that bell. And then you, when the volume goes over that, um, it automatically, uh, it automatically switches on. Um, I don't know if I would, I mean, I'm telling you how to creatively do it. I wouldn't do that. Uh, what I would do is, is I would allow in, in the Sunday place that I think you're doing, there's a, there's a, uh, there's typically some pre-work that happens there and you kind of want to be in the space, you know, for a little bit. So I would cut away as soon as things are settled, I would cut away and let people see the space and be in the space and be kind of part of that space as opposed to necessarily, um, uh, jumping right. I, I wouldn't do a sudden jump to the bell. In my opinion, I would try to get a cue and then open it up a minute or two before the bell and then let the bell occur inside of the show. Um, so that's that's how I would approach that specific one. I wouldn't do it from there. But if you wanted to, you'd have something activating across a certain um, frequency uh, to make that happen. Go ahead, Mitchell. Simpler ways, uh, make a switch out of the uh, striker and the bell itself. And so as hard as that to, makes contact, the Arduino sends the command out to do whatever you want. It'd be so hard to do that and still retain the energy of the bell. Like that, you you can't put anything against the bell. Like it's a whether I don't know whether it's a bell or a bowl, um, uh, but if it's if it's one or the other, you can't put something against it and still have it have the energy that you would expect it to have. The person ringing the bell would notice it immediately. Have <laughs> so, it fire off a uh, so, a pre-recorded bell sound effect. You know, it's funny is, so when uh, my, uh, uh, my my wife works for a meditation center and I actually have a bowl that I got in Dharmasala, uh, India, <laughs> and, and so I recorded, I, I set the whole thing up and I recorded it and that's the one that's still being used is that, is that to your point, is a, is a play out of that. But I think that for the folks that are in the room, I think what they want is probably the real thing. Um, um, next question. Hasma Kajar from Cape Town, South Africa, asking, based on a question in office hours that may have a consequence resolution or update, how should the community post that? My question on annoying iPhone screen capture was solved. Accessibility, touch, back tap. I don't know what the, I don't, I'm not sure I remember what the question was. What was the annoying uh, phone screen capture? I don't know. I don't know what that was. So I, I, guess, I remember he was, was he was putting the thing in his car and it was uh, taking it. It was taking a screenshot, and Chris Fenwick got the answer. There we go. Accessibility, touchback, tap. There we go. Uh, next question. 
Robert Sababadi from Poland asked, what is a CAN bus and what does it use? Can it make our production work any easier, for example, over a VLAN to control a PTZ located in a different location? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I've seen the uh, CAN bus referred to in cars, of all places. I think it's an IEEE-type uh, uh, specification for a communication protocol that's serial. Yeah, I've never seen a CAN bus as it relates to um, specifically to a um, audiovisual. To, uh, just like uh, Mitchell, my understanding of a CAN bus is related to automobiles. Go ahead, Jeff. It is indeed a serial type bus, and uh, it can be used for certain controls. Like the DJI Ronin has a CAN bus adapter uh, where you can go in and control that um, pan, tilt, and uh, and Z axis that it can do in the gimbal. Uh, so it just, it's a communications protocol over VPN. Mm, uh, no, I wouldn't try that. I mean, there's a lot of ways to, to do that. I mean, really most of the time when we talk about remote control over PTZs, uh, either the PTZs themselves are IP controllable, and there's a lot of PTZs that have that, and that's what we would probably look for. Or you can look at a VSCA control, so that's con but there are plenty of devices out there that will convert IP commands to VSCA. So I would probably look for VSCA controls or a uh, um, or, or and then there's what was the, what's the one with the little in the little cameras? Um, I can't Lank. remember now. Lank. Lank. You can do cool. you can do like you can actually uh, there are some IP to Lank controls as well that, that we have experimented with. But Lank is so janky. That we couldn't, you know, like you would the 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 delay along with the lank was, you know, but you could do it as, in a protocol. It's basically using like audio to to tell it what to do. Um, so so anyway, so that's the um, but but I think that uh, uh, I would really try to if I was doing going through the trouble of this, I'd probably look for I, PTZ controllers that are IP controllable, and then build a, v, a build a, a uh, not a VLAN but a um, a VPN to that location so that I, and we have done that. So we've had controllers for, you know, a variety of different PTZ cameras on one side of the country controlling the PTZs on another side of the country. And that's totally doable with a VPN and an IP based um, controller. For us, we were using telemetrics, but there's lots of them that will work. I go ahead, Chris. I'd like to point out while you're throwing shade on Lank that Lank is a protocol that's like 35 years old and Sony brilliantly was putting Lank on devices for about a year and a half before they even revealed what it was. I thought that was, it was a real, it's a really interesting history of the Lank control system. Yes, it's very old and, and sucks now, but it's an interesting story from back then. I always find that what gets inserted into things over time and then suddenly like, surprise, we're here. And Lank is definitely one of them. The other one that was interesting was, you know, Apple um, putting in, Basically, putting FireWire into the Max and then persuading, you know, selling it as a standard, persuading all the camera manufacturers to put FireWire into their into their consumer cameras, and then charging, and then Apple asking for a two dollar royalty, you know, for for it, which would increase the the overall retail price of a PC by fifty dollars once it rolls, you know, doubles and doubles and doubles and doubles. So all the PC manufacturers pulled back away from FireWire, and when <laughs> It, it became clear that Apple wasn't trying to make more money. They were trying to get the PC manufacturers to take FireWire out of their computers so that they wouldn't be compatible with all the cameras. <laughs> so like that, that's the probably the, one of the more uh, amazing uh, little chess plays that I've ever seen. So then that's why Max became a thing that everyone was doing video with because um, you had to get a separate card to, 
to put a firewire into your PC for a while. Um, it was just just a couple of years of of, uh, of glitchiness was enough to give them a, a head start. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. When unsure of full context of a question, depends, can you check chat for clarification of the question? Uh, we can try. Uh, you know, usually because we're kind of moving through it, the best thing for us to do is kind of go, it depends and we don't understand it and have someone ask the question again. We Since we do this every day, I think if we were doing it once a week or we'd probably, be, you know, if we were running out of questions all the time and leaving the you know, 20 behind or something like that, we might do that. But, um, you know, I think that the challenge is really to, I mean, it, it kind of draws down the the flow of the show to try to look at, at all of these. So we, we try to leave the weight on the question asker or to, uh, um, to, to figure out a way to say it concisely. Um, next question. Steve Bauer from Seattle, Washington. Loopbacks pass-through still confuses me. If I create a new device and then add a new source called pass-through with its output channels going to channel one and two and the modern Bean Studio display speakers I have, I hear nothing. Go ahead, Chris. Um, Steve, I apologize that that's uh, confusing. Your question is, I'm a little confused. If you reach out to me on Discord, I will set up a time and we will meet face-to-face and try and figure out your problem. Well, I think that I think one of the problems here is that the... uh, um, so I think that the problem you're having right now is pass through is whatever the active device is, I believe it's taking from the active device. So for instance, if you're taking stuff out of a mix pre, you need to have it set to pass through, um, because it's going to say, I'm going to pass through what the mix, you know, if the mix pre is active, this is what's going to go out of there. Um, the problem that I think that Steve's having is he doesn't have a monitor set up. So he's got it set to output. Um, but there's no, there's a third column there that says monitor and you have to I say, that that you have to set the monitor out. Um, so I think that your third, there's a first column, second column is output, third or third column is monitor, and you have to set your speakers or whatever the speakers are being fed by um, with uh, uh, with 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 a monitor, or you won't see it. So I think that's thank my... you for saving me an extra Zoom meeting. I think you're right about that. <laughs> I, so if you just if you just set up a, a loopback that has two columns. That means you still have to go select it somewhere, okay? You have to go select it as your input in some app somewhere. But by pushing it to those speakers for the studio display, it will actually get there. That's what Alex is saying. I uh, have to say, I, um, I, I took loop, loop, Loopback. I had a little problem with Ace, which Loopback sat on top of, and then... <laughs> It was it was such a stressful event when it didn't go when it didn't go right that I just w- didn't want to think about loopback again because it was the it wasn't loopback it was the ACE platform on top of it and mixed with Zoom and and it was like on an event that was really big and I fixed it but it was you know it's one of those when I get I don't get stressed very often for a lot of events and when I get stressed I never want to see whatever created that again and um, there. I've gone through a lot and so when I'm at that level it means that it was really tra- traumatic for me and so I just wouldn't even deal with it I didn't want to put it on I didn't want to think about it I put it back on and I've been playing with it and then Chris and I did the uh the core the the Korg thing and I was just like this is just the most amazing program <laughs> like it's just the coolest program and I sit there and play with ideas like now I'm taking one where I'm taking like Dante out of another computer and I'm feeding it back into the mix pre which then is used as small volume to feed it back into the into my show and you know it's just a it's a it's slick that's all I gotta say it's a slick, yeah it's a slick I, program. It, I find it to be super fascinating and I absolutely give full credit to COVID because I never would have gotten this deep into a system if I had to share the computer with other people yeah no, absolutely uh, next question 
And we have another QR code question coming in from Zach Jeffers in Spokane, Washington. Uh, Ryan Summerfield just hosted a live remote green screen interview with a simulated over-the-shoulder camera motion, etc. Something we see more of in the future of broadcast or just a gimmick? I'll go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I think we'll see more of this. It just requires an enormous amount of work. You know, some of it is getting the same camera, same sensor, same lighting, same lens, and the same exact uh, distance. So you get that field of view that's exactly the same. We first saw this with Oprah Winfrey and Barack Obama, where you had him in one location and Oprah in another. And so when they cut the two together, as long as you have the bandwidth to be able to to get a, a high quality, ideally a 422 signal from one side to the other, you can get this very realistic. And if you put a monitor that's about the same size as the human and you get that eye line right, you can really make it look in, in post um, like uh, these guys did here. So this is Ryan Summerfield and Andre and uh, I know Ryan's in Australia, so Ryan's the one in the right on the on the single chair, and you can see how they've uh, managed to do the same thing as the Barack Obama and, and Oprah interview, where they're they're in a different location using, I believe, the same cameras, but it's hard to tell. I haven't watched. They're going to do a, f- a future episode where they talk about the breakdown of how they did this, but you get the idea. It's it's uh, you know remote guest, same camera, same glass uh, angles with eye line and then uh, cutting it together and uh, making it look real. So I think we'll see more of this stuff in the future. I think it's really cool. Go ahead, Bill. Guy explained it perfectly. There's nothing I can really add to the explanation. I will say that for people who see this from home and think, well, I could just do that, set up a couple of green screens and I'll knock it out. It never works like that. This is a lot of craft and a lot of technical know-how, how making all the little pieces of it equal so that the two shots seamlessly merge. It's really well done in this case, but it's not trivial. Go, Jeff. I, I was going to suggest the same thing too, Bill. It's like this. They really went into detail uh, on their breakdown video, which I watched yesterday. And I'm, I'm, I've done this before. I, I did it with actually moving cameras and Fort Live 4K backplates and stuff for um, a company. And uh, it was not simple at that time and what they showed the controlled environment that they had we were doing it in live spaces it was a nightmare uh but what they have developed out of that i was just floored about the quality that they were able to key and to be able to pull and the workflow that they were able to work out but as they pointed out it is not simple it takes a lot of measurements it takes a lot of to just get it right so it looks and feels like it's natural and their use of unreal is just really really good uh, if you've not watched any of the social you have got addicted to them lately and i've been watching their stuff it's they don't have a huge viewership but they have a lot of great information if you're working in production and, and working in that world especially in the virtual production world it is just an amazing series. I highly suggest uh, working at it. Good, Chris. It's, you know, it, it's almost like you can't believe what you see on TV. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I, I've done a couple of these, um, of these kind of framed, you know, match frame shots um, and with green screen. And we've done it with, you know, some pretty nice ultimates and done it live, you know, not even for post, but, but a live, you know, back and forth uh, for events. Uh, it's really impressive and it's really cool. And I love the way that they broke this down of showing how they, how they did it. I actually don't think it'll be that popular. And the reason for that, I don't think you'll see it a lot. You'll see it in some places, but I think that I, I have a couple reasons for that. And I, I, 
I did this because I, I spent a couple of years doing a lot of green screen work and doing some of these uh, over uh, over three or four years. We did a lot of things like this, and we kind of moved away from it. And I can I actually know the moment that it happened for me that it broke, which is that we did a we did a a two way conversation. You still find it on the web if you search for it between um, Elon Musk and, and Richard Branson. And Elon Musk was in his house. He had some big purple chair and it was empty. Otherwise, <laughs> the house was empty. And and Branson uh, was in Necker and it was a bad, and they, both of these were really, really bad videos. I mean, the bad video quality. And the first, you know, 10 minutes of it was pretty rough. Um, and then they just sunk in and started talking about creating businesses. And it was the best video I had ever worked on as far as a conversation goes. And I was like, I am going about this all wrong. <laughs> you know, I am, I am, I am like, I'm trying to think about how to push all this technology in when what's important is that they were both in a comfortable space for them. Um, they were, they were, we were, they were talking to each other. They could see each other in front of each other. They were having this conversation and they were 5,000 miles apart. And it just, it, it, it was so much more important what I realized. And cause both of them, I've worked with them before and after that, both of them. And both of them are generally uncomfortable. <laughs> like when they're around a lot of people and in a, in a space, uh, you know, they don't like to be touched. They don't like to have a lot of things around them. They don't like, you know, there's a lot of things that bother them. And what I found was them being in their own space, talking to each other was just this really, con this really interesting connection. And the audience got to be somewhere that they couldn't be any other, at any other time. You were standing in a place that you couldn't stand. There was 5,000 people watching live. And there's 5,000 people. Like if, if you put those two in a stage with 5,000 people, they could have never done it. And if we had put them in a green screen, and this is what I, because I've been doing tons of green screen at the same time, it would not have been the same conversation because they would have been um, uncomfortable. You know, and, and, and the thing is, is that what we moved for, what we pivoted from after that, that one show was really focusing on how to make the talent comfortable and how to make them feel like they're connected. Like even... Uh, the one that with Oprah and, and Obama, Obama is an, a, a master pre presenter. He's a master interviewee. And as someone who's worked with Obama a bunch of times, I can tell you he was uncomfortable. And you know, like he was, I can tell that there was a tightness to what he was doing with uh, the Oprah conversation. And, I, and I'm sure that it was because of all the tech around him, you know, that, 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 that had him not be, you know, just able to be in that, you know, to react the same way, you know, and, and it's a little really subtle things because he's so good at it. But I think that the challenge really with a lot of these is being, you know, have, what's much, far more important than all of the, how it looks and sounds and everything else is that the talent, the people, these, these thinkers are super comfortable with where they're at, you know, and I, and, and, and that they can get to a space where they can be authentic, when they can say what they want to say, when they can, you know, do all, like one of the things that we do a lot of when we prepare people is we get, uh, we did, we did a bunch of interviews for um, <clears throat> a tech company and we sent a bunch of gear to, to them, a lot of gear because this was during COVID and we wanted like film quality, HDR, everything else that's there. We got everybody to set up their gear the day before. Why did we do that? Because we knew it would be hard. <laughs> they had to do it by themselves. And we knew it would be hard and they'd be really angry and frustrated by the end of the day by after putting it together. And we did everything we could to ease that pain, but it was still going to happen. And then we wanted them to forget about that 
and come in the next day and just be able to sit down and be in a conversation. And we make these conversations, we make these decisions all the time. Like how many times can they read that script? How many times can they do this? How many times, like a lot of times I try to get them to read the whole script from the top to the bottom because that's, we're going to try to use that one because that's the one where they're the most often or first or second time through uh, when we say we're not recording. Um, are the ones oftentimes that we use big chunks of because they're, you know, because af after we've asked them to re-say that paragraph four times, they're off the rest of the time. <laughs> like, you know, and so, so they're, but if you're paying attention to how people feel and where they're at, I think that all of this tech becomes a bit of a distraction at times. You were going to say something, Chris? Yeah, curious. The, the, um, the, the video you talked about with Elon and um, Virgin Guy, I'm sorry, uh, Richard Branson. Branson. Yeah. Apologize, Mr. Yeah, Branson. He's, 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 um, he's only done a couple of little things. Just... Has he? Um, were, <laughs> curious, were they eye to eye or were they looking off camera? They were looking almost eye to eye. I mean, it was, they were both on a laptop. I mean, they were literally, this is over Google Hangouts and they were on a laptop and they were just looking at each other. Um, I am a big, I mean, so when I started doing Interatron, we had a client, Salesforce, um, you know, uh, Brian Ebsery uh, at Salesforce, he does a lot of their film work, and he brought us in to do green screen, and we did a bunch of green screen stuff with him, and he was obsessed with, um, uh, he was obsessed with Interatron, which I didn't know a lot about. You know, like, I, I literally was like, I don't understand why you would do that. Why would you, like, that's a lot harder to manage, and it's all this gear and everything else. And once there was a point for me with Interatron was I realized that a person, when looking at another person does something different. Like, so when they, when I see you on the other side of a, a thing, my eyes converge slightly differently. And I do this weird thing where my face will mimic your face a little bit. Like, it's just like a tiny little bit. And it, it's a different experience. It's, and it feels more like you're talking to them. And so I became very, uh, so we did, and we did thousands of hours for Salesforce of doing all of these interviews and all the interviews over green screen all over the world. We'd, there'd always be in every Salesforce event, we'd have a We'd have a uh, green screen uh, room with a green screen, and we would just bring in one leader after another to talk about how, how great Salesforce is, right? And so, so we did hundreds and, or thousands of hours of this. We were doing like, uh, yeah, again, I think I've said in the past, like 10 hours a week of, 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 this, of this kind of footage, of green screen footage. And they were over green screen, but there was something that, that they got pulled into it when they – and then – we had to talk to the interviewers because some of the interviewers would look at them and some of them would look down. And we realized that when you look down, when you're doing an Interatron, it actually takes energy away from the guest. You know, you can't look at your notes. So we had to figure out ways to put the notes, you know, in the screen so that, so that the interviewer never had to look down and they had to learn to be able to stay in the conversation because it mattered, you know? And so, so these are all things that we, um, uh, but, but I guess we got very focused on this being present and being, and I just don't think that the other stuff matters. I think we can get into it. I don't like over the shoulder anymore. I don't like people looking off camera. I don't like, I mean, I, I, I know that that's a personal thing, but I think that in the Zoom land, we are far more used to this frame than we are to this frame. This frame is, and, and, I, and I have to say that to me, especially because we have TikTokers looking straight into the camera, we have YouTubers looking straight into the camera, we have everyone's looking straight into the camera, and then we have old media doing this. But this is, this is not quite as old media as Step and Repeat, but it's getting there. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's starting to, like we are approaching the fact that looking off camera is saying that uh, I, I've been doing this for a long time and haven't done anything new for a while. <laughs> so anyway, so, so it's, it's a, I think we're kind of on that path because every, all the new media is all looking straight into camera. 
you know, like so, so just to be clear, and I think I'm picking this up, right. You had these two huge luminaries basically sitting there on their laptops, less than ideal tech, but because they were comfortable and because they were in their space, they could have a conversation with each other. And you realized that your, your um, obsession, I'll say, and I don't mean that in a bad way, of like the tech has to be perfect, the lights have to be perfect, the audio has to be perfect. What took kind of a backseat to their comfortableness so that the conversation was more pure, correct? Yeah. 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 And, 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 and I, you know, you'll, you'll talk to a lot of people who will talk, like when I come to a show, when I work on a show, there's a lot of people that will talk about the tech and I'll talk about the tech before I get there. But a big part of my conversation after that one episode and, and, uh, and I've seen this happen multiple times, you know, like where we've had, where the tech isn't perfect, but the, the event is amazing. Um, and, uh, because of the comfort level of that. So what I talk about a lot is how to, how to, how are our guests going to feel? Like, how do they feel when they're there? And how does the moderator feel? And, and can they be present? And do they have the information? Do they have the support? And, and we think about that when we're managing the whole event. When I manage the whole event for someone, because there's some events where we come in and we do the cameras, right? Or we do the live stream. We just put the encoders at the end. But for some of the events, we have, we control the cam, we control everything down to the flowers in the, in the green room, you know, and, and we have discussions, um, where we look at, um, you know, we're trying to figure out from the time the, the, our VIP leaves their hotel, we want them to be comfortable. Like, and we think about every step that they make all the way through so that when they arrive and are there, everything about that has set them up to be present, you know, and to, and to not feel like anything's out of control. That means no uncertainty of where they go in the, to go through the door, no uncertainty of where to go, having the temperature be correct in their green room, having just the things that they want laid out, having the things laid out in their green room in order so that they, it looks like we meant to do this. You know, like this is how we, this is how we present it. You know, uh, if we get to have a walkthrough with them, we have them walk through like we have this one, uh, uh, we had one person, uh, runs a pretty big company, big social company, and, um, and we'll walk through with them and they, we would just, they're very low key. So you have to look at them and if, if they just went, mm, like this, they'd look at something and they just, that was all it took. And we were like, okay, let's figure out how to fix that. <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's figure out, because they're never going to complain about it, but you're, you're trying to figure out how to, you know, solve that problem. And, and when we, as we got better and better at that, um, the shows got better, you know, like, and the tech is, you know, I, I worry about the tech, get the tech working, make sure the tech works, you know, like that's, that's important, but I don't, the mistake a lot of people make in my industry I, that I see over and over again is the they get it, the producers, the people, us, we get bored with the way it's working and we want to do something more and more aggressive technologically and we're putting the talent through something that we think would be interesting but is not necessarily something that, they're, that, that has them feel secure and, you know, in a place where they can be present and authentic. And when we take that away from them... Uh, we just get less less of a show, and we lose more from their performance. They're everything, you know. They're it's a very complicated. A human being being present and authentic is super complicated. Like it is super hard to do, um, and it is it and it's much harder than all the tech that we do. And and that's the thing that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, go ahead, Nigel. I, I just wanted to add a thought apropos what you were just saying. I, I used to work with and for a CMO of a Fortune ten company, and after a day with them. 
uh, it was it occurred to me they didn't necessarily remember anything that had happened in the conversation. They'd been very effective and efficient in everything they did. I mean, spectacular, but couldn't remember half the conversations, which is why they had an assistant. And I and we were discussing that. And what they said to me is, "You need to understand at this level, you, you're thinking about five things, and they're all bad." And the biggest mistake you can make is try and be one of those five things. And really, if you want to be an effective around a senior executive at that level, don't be one of the five things. Make that something they don't fuss about. Because if they focus on you, it won't be a pleasant experience. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and sometimes they they just put up with it. But again, you, you see the people who get good at being around folks that are at that level. And and they are, you know, all of us learn how to be in the background, you know, and just and just and just be in you know in that thing. And the goal is to give them the space to to do what they need to do and be as assertive as you need to be to tell them what to do, but as be but be also as quiet as you can to let them do the thing that they're going to do. Um, I have the same problem. I know that when I'm in meetings, I always have someone else in the meeting because I can't remember the meeting. Like I'm I'm in the meeting because I'm the managing being present and managing the conversation is all the energy that I have. And if I write stuff down, I can't can't be present at the same time. And it does, it's just, I'm not as good at figuring out exactly what they need. I've, I'm just putting together another show. And that's a step lower. Um, next question. There's a QR code question coming in from Agent Ogden in San Francisco, California. The show is 99% audio. Rarely is anything ever shown. I hear things like I did some lower thirds last night. Why not show them and what was used to build them? Go ahead, Bill. We do it as much as possible. I will say sometimes it is difficult to do. Uh, we try to prepare as much as we can and have graphics. You will notice that uh, Guy earlier had video examples of things. I had actually prepared the same second one in case I need it, but when he showed it, I didn't need it. But that extra work is something we all want to do as much as we can. But there's also this certain kind of progressive disclosure thing about that. We know that a lot of people are listening. And they're driving and they're doing something else. Uh, that's why most of us who do reader work here, we try to figure out, is there something I should describe that they can't see because they're listening only? But this show does have vi visuals and video, and we try to do it whenever we can. I just think that, you know, it's impossible to do this perfectly in real time live every day. And we're just going to do the best we possibly can if we miss it. I apologize for the times I miss it. I know everybody else works hard to try to give you everything you need to understand the answer to the question, but sometimes we probably fall a little short. Go ahead, Guy. Oh, can't hear you. Yeah, same, same thing um, that Bill just said. It's it's a little complicated. Even just now, as about to queue up a uh, another shot, which here, I'll go ahead and do it. So the, this is what's in my hand is a, is a stream deck. But to get this shot, I had to, you know, uh, during the break, yeah, when I wasn't talking, cue this up so that I can be able to push that that stream deck. And all that is is just in my hand, and it's just got this pop socket thing here. But being able to do this without having somebody here to to frame up my shot, I'm sitting here. My arm is crossing the frame right now to try and put it in into that shot. So it's just a lot of complexity. So some of us will um, cue up a graphic and have it ready to go, but it's just a matter of you know having like three brains going at the same time, one to get the shot, one to know which button to press to cut to, being having the mouse in the right, uh, so I use Synergy. So if I don't have the mouse in the right frame, like I couldn't unmute there with my, because this is a mute button as well. So that's how that that looks. If uh, if you want to mimic this, it's just a pop socket on the back of a, of a stream. Yeah, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris. I will say this. There are many moments where we're doing stuff and it's like, oh, I could show that. And 
the, the, the number of things that you have to do is like, I go in, I go over to our back end system, I raise my hand and then I dive over and I'm opening up this and I'm framing it on the frame and I'm getting ready. It's like, and then, and then Alex says, go ahead and talk. And yeah, we show stuff when we can. It's, it's not always easy. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that a lot of times when, uh, when we're talking about things, when questions are asked early, I um, mean, this one was asked uh, a little bit early, so we, <laughs> so we got to think about it. But when things are asked early, a lot of times like that, a good example is the question about framing. That was asked long before the show. So I went, I grabbed Downey, I went to YouTube, uh, I grabbed onto, um, I wanted to see, grab a video that I thought would probably be legal because it's on YouTube, like not legal, but not going to be a strike. Grabbed it, pulled it over, put it on. Um, you know, did the things that I, uh, that I needed to do, but that was all, you know, that took 10 minutes for me to kind of get everything kind of organized so that I could show you that example. And so when people ask questions, because we take questions live, uh, it's, it's not possible for us to do that all the time, um, to make that actually happen. What's interesting is you are asking about lower thirds and graphics and, uh, Alex Golner and I are going to do a couple of motion, uh, uh, labs as second hours, uh, in December. Um, Alex, you know, we're going to do, uh, Alex is probably the most technical, most technical motion user in the world. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, generating those and, and, and how to approach that. We'll see if we can get Mark Spencer, who's probably the other most technical person in, uh, uh, in motion uh, on there as well. And so we, we will be showing more things, especially when we prep those labs. We'll, you'll see us more. But on the general Q&A, um, that tends to be a bit challenging. Um, next question. Hasma Kajar from Cape Town, South Africa, figured out how to create video in one speaker input in Circle. Second video as input of desktop as background using ATEM upstream Luma and pattern keys with video one as a fill and key source. Can this be done with a graphic? I think so. I don't fully understand that question. I think that we, we hit the limitation of our, of our ability to give you enough words or enough characters to ask a question that we understand. So I'm not sure if I completely understand what that... I, I try. I read that a couple times before the show, um, and I can't quite figure out what you're doing. So, um, and I don't know whether some of those numbers are should be words or words be numbers. But I, um, you might need another another pass at that question um, to make that work. Go ahead, Bill. Well, also remember that almost all the atoms have not only Luma, but also chroma keyers. So if you design graphics that have windows in colors, you might be able to use a chroma key to make that part of it transparent, even if it has things like soft edges. There's a lot of possibilities when you investigate both Luma and Chroma keys and where which one works best where. And generally, if I'm using anything with a slant or a curve, I will not use a Chroma key because I can see the edges. <laughs> like I can see this aliasing along the edges because it's a 422 signal. And so if I use Chroma key, I'm using always square uh, square edges, um, uh, which you could use a lot of things for, but that's the, you know, and you can use semi-transparency with it and everything else, but I don't do curves or slants. Yeah, go ahead, Chris, pretty quick. Uh, behind the scenes stuff here, Alex, would it be possible for us to have the ability, I know it's a huge ask, to put an image in a, into a question so that, so that Hasma could have said, can I make this this look on my ATEM? And I think what he's asking for is a desktop with a little circle with the dude in the corner. Someday, <laughs> yeah, like it's it's a it's a it's not a technical problem. It's a it's a storage problem it's and a past problem. It's uh, you know like so when you know like it's that becomes expensive. Like just so you know, like it's we've we've thought about it, we've talked about it, we've researched it. Allowing people to upload images that are large enough for us to do it at scale 
um, just requires an investor. <laughs> like, you know, so like it's, it's a, so, you know, like that's, that's all it, 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 the server costs are, you know, one of those pictures is like our whole show worth of data. So that's, and if people start getting excited about it and doing it, then it becomes more problematic. Um, quick reminder that, of course, we're, we're doing two hours of uh, Q&A today. So if you've got more questions, of course, you can throw those into Mukana, vote on the questions because that's going to give us the order in which we ask the questions. Um, so make sure to vote on the questions or you can just go to askofficehours.global and put those questions in and we will feed those in uh, throughout the second hour and into tomorrow. We also have a volunteer meeting on Saturday, even if it is Thanksgiving Saturday, you know, we'll still be here um, doing the volunteer meeting. That'll be at 9 a.m. on Saturday. Now we'll jump into the second hour. I almost got that right. It's more of a, it's more me, me getting it right than them. They, they, they're on a clock. <laughs> I'm, I'm still working on how to, how to trail out perfectly there. So that's, but that's why we're doing it. We're, if you're wondering why we go to that, we'll be a little more casual this week. If you're wondering why we're doing that is because we're going to eventually have an automated slice that happens right at that, at that dark area where we separate the second hour from the first hour and atomize the first hour. Um, but we need to, um, but I'm, we figured out the technology on their end. I'm figuring out how to do it as a host, how to land uh, land the, the the plane right on the runway, and that one I went a little off the end of the runway. <laughs> so anyway, uh, next question. That's a QR question uh, uh, going into our second hour here from David in London, UK. Tomonmusic.com, the online music store in Germany, is offering a substantial Black Friday deal, 52% off on the Boss GCS 8 Gigacaster 8. Is this mixer considered good? You know, I I looked at it, I, I don't think it's a, I don't, I don't know if I would consider it like a modern, you know, uh, mixer. I'd be much more likely at the same or similar price point for slightly more than that boss is on sale. I'd be, I'd look at the Behringer Flow 8. They're, they're very, they're not exactly the same in the feature set, but the Behringer Flow 8, Flow 8 I think you're going to find to be a more modern mixer than, than the boss. Um, and boss is not necessarily the highest quality components. Um, so I don't think that you're going to, I think that you'd probably be better off with the Flow 8 than, a, than, a, than the Gigacaster um, or Gigcaster. Um, next question. Jeffrey Powers uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, and also here on our panel. Here is how you can avoid a strike on YouTube for showing copyrighted content. Good. I'll, I, I listed Brandon first, but go ahead, Jeffrey. What were you going to say? Um, yeah. So we, of course, earlier you talked about uh the copyright and showing, of course, we uh, saw a little bit of the matrix on there. Uh, but I've gone down a big rabbit hole on this because there is a lot of channels, YouTube channels out there that are using video content, uh, copyrighted video content to make money off of their channels. And I learned a lot from this. And I, I wanted to, to uh, share, kind of like do a little mini class on things that you can do to make that work for your whatever you're going to do so uh, i got a little list here uh basically first of all if you're doing anything like that you want to tread as lightly as possible always expect always have that thick skin because if they come back and they say no monetization no uh, or even to the copyright strike level uh instead of being like all defensive and saying well this is all fair use blah 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 there the better thing to do is to figure out what went wrong, how to fix it, and tread lightly on there so you can dispute the issues and keep your channel going. Now with that, here are some, here are some tricks that you can do to place some of the, the 
content without getting in trouble. First of all, this channel, it can still get a copyright strike, but we do not monetize anything on this channel. So it makes it, I don't want to say it makes it harder, but the chances of getting a copyright strike are a lot less than just basically getting a slap on the wrist. Uh, putting the video into a bordered thing like uh like a, a super source or anything like that is always a great thing. Shrinking it down, making it look like it's part of the show. That's the key right there is to make sure that the, uh, the video looks to be part of the show. If it's completely obscure, completely off base of what you're talking about, then it's not considered in a lot of cases, not considered fair use. Some of the creators that are out there that are making video like the uh, reaction videos and things like that, they're starting to flip the video. So you see, instead of you seeing Neo look this way, he's looking this way for only a, a, a brief second. And that's the next thing is the duration of the video. You don't want to go too long on it. You want to take it nice and short and do a whole bunch of clips back and forth. Uh, don't take like the preview or the trailer of a movie and use that, but make your own trailer of clips so they're not in the success in, in succession and they also follow the storyline that you're giving, not the storyline that they're giving. Um, you can also put in a LUT or anything like that to match what is going on with your video so you so it's all looking like it's part of your story not their story uh try not to do any of the sound from the show i know that there's some uh some videos that play little clips and things like that like you can't handle the truth or, or anything like that that they need to have that in to talk about the story but if you can play a clip and talk about a clip your overlay uh, voice uh, with no sound from the the movie or TV show, that helps a lot. Because there's a there are a few channels I was trying to find one in particular. I, it's the name's escaping me. All they do is they'll take like ten to fifteen minute clips of TV shows of movies. They don't promote them as like for instance, Young Sheldon TV show. They'll take a clip from Young Young Sheldon, and instead of saying Sheldon try uh, runs away from a chicken, uh, which actually happened in the TV show, they'll say this boy is frightened of poultry. So you're not directly referencing that this is a clip from Young Sheldon. They're taking the the clip. They're they're uh, they're putting their own audio over the clip. They're documentary over the clip and that can be ai uh created to do anything like that so try not to take the sound from the uh, show and you can do that and of course shorts are very i don't want to say relaxed but they they give you a little bit more creative uh, uh mm -hmm. use on that as well overlays pictures and pictures which is why I think that a lot of times we need to start using whenever we see a video like this, that we should be using a super source where somebody's on this on the side. And then of course, or a bordered box that would, uh, that would give the reference from there. Uh, you want to, like I said, you want to give your opinion. You want to stay away from the name of the clip, but you do want to reference the clip. Like for instance, I watch screen crush all the time and screen crush is, uh, is a site for geeks to, uh, to, basically break down Marvel movies and other uh, TV shows and movies like that. And every time that they put a clip in, they put low, lower third on the bottom saying where that reference is from, but they don't reference it in any, any other way. Uh, when it comes to monetization, 
that's a, that's a sticky wicket right there. And that's where your thick skin really needs to come into play here because you've got, you just basically have to understand that sometimes you're going to get dinged for certain things and it's how you react to those that make your channel mm -hmm. succeed or fail. So keep that in mind. And a couple more things here. Uh, really just, just, just one way, right? We'll go a little quicker. <laughs> so yeah, if you have a couple more, I, I think that we, uh, we can go a little faster. <laughs> so. Um, do you have it, just one more? Uh, two more things. Um, you can always use, well, I, I got thrown off on there. There are some great uh, sources that you can go to to get, get content from. But uh, these are some great ways for uh, somebody that wants to start. And, of course, you did do the, uh, the telescript or tele, yeah, I, tele, uh, My thing uh, is, is that, that I wantonly... I wantonly know that the chances of me getting uh, a strike are very, very low because it was already on somebody else's channel, and I uh, and, and I don't care about monetization, so I can do whatever I want. <laughs> so, so that's kind of like unless they, and the worst case scenario, they'll cut one question out, like they'll I'll have to cut, we'll have to edit a question out and and call it a day. So I, you know, I, I think I I definitely do it within a very small window of. You know, mine is absolutely clearly fair use because we're breaking down something. So I don't have any legal, I don't, I'm legally able to use the, exactly. So it's just a matter of what does YouTube's um, uh, algorithm going to do. And, and, but it's not, I have no fear of that I'm not using it legally because that, that is a, that is about as fair use as you can get. Um, yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I was going to say, just to kind of piggyback on what Jeff was saying, you know, keeping it in that like commentary style of things, um, as long as you're not using the audio, you're keeping your clips that you're showing on screen to under, you know, two to three seconds, um, I think is the limit on it. Um, there's a few channels I love to follow, uh, In-Depth Cine, um, Frame Voyager, and Patrick Tommaso do a lot of breakdowns on movies as part of their series. And that was like a big thing that they've like come to because it's like, you can illustrate everything you need, mm -hmm. but don't go beyond that three-second mark, and you should be pretty safe um, to be able to continue monetization. Yeah, and, and again, I, I just chose that I'm never going to make a show about mon with monetization on, on YouTube because I just don't – it was too restrictive for me. And so I was like, I don't want to have to worry about it. <laughs> I just want to talk about what I want to talk about. Um, exactly. next, ne next question. <laughs> Next up, Alan Scott from Fredericton, Canada, asked, I've heard about the need to genlock multiple cameras. What hardware is required and how do you make it work? Go ahead, Jeff. First off, uh, why do you need to genlock uh, in this day and age? So ask your question that. Genlocking usually is mostly in higher-end uh, production studios or, or in facilities, OB trucks, you name it, uh, that need to have everything synced together so that the switcher can actually switch on a frame or a in between frames whenever you want a clean cut the other side of that simple question black burst generator uh for the the lower end of gen locking or tri-level uh in generator if you're doing hd sources and need to lock that together then you'll need a da of some sort uh the distribution amplifier to be able to send that signal out to all the different devices that need to receive the black burst or the gen lock signal and also you can sometimes use a router that's what i kind of use actually i have a black magic router that's its job in one of my trucks that's all it does is takes that one input and then sends it back out 12 outputs 
into uh, our devices. Back in the day of older CCUs, you would have a loop in and out. Uh, so you would go in where the butt bursts, go out of the genlog into the next one and on and on and on. That's less likely to see uh, nowadays in, in more recent uh, years, but that's the basics of it. But first, hey, ask yourself why. Go Bill. Jeff pretty much nailed it. Once upon a time when we were doing SD video, NTSC video was all the same. To get the signals synchronized, there's a thing called the vertical interval and then line one. And then everything, all the cameras feeding had to be on line one at the same time so you could switch them together. That is less and less and less important because now we've got all these different frame rates, all these different rasters, uh, HD, SD, things coming out of H.264 and this and that. So you really need something that will coordinate it. But it's usually happened in the back end now in the edit system or in the live switchers that does some things that engineers often uh, colloquialize as frame shaking to get them to start at the same time. And so this is older tech that's not as important as it used to be. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, as Bill said, synchronous um, time code is very important. All the frames have to be lined up. And some of them actually provide a digital sync for uh, digital devices that are generating uh, outputs, like an AES output. Uh, they need to be synchronous with the time code and with the device. Yeah, if we're doing iMag uh, in, a, in a room, we absolutely need Genlock. Uh, we can't even use software switchers because there's too much uh, latency in them. So we, we use hardware switchers. Um, with Genlock to, re, you know, and because every frame matters, you notice the, the the sync problem because you can't make the the audio go slower <laughs> because the person's up there talking. And so you have to get that video as close as possible to it. So we definitely use Genlock when we're trying to, for anything that's in room where we're going to see it on a screen. Um, a lot of larger, like broadcast trucks, TriCaster, or not TriCasters, um, uh, uh, EBSs and all kinds of other things. A lot of the older broadcast stuff really expect to get Genlock um, to, to have those things work and they become a little difficult if they don't have them. Um, so they're kind of expecting that to, to be part of that process. Also, when uh, you're doing very, very low latency two-way communication, so I do a lot of bi-directional stuff over, you know, from two different locations, every 10 milliseconds matters to me because um, I'm trying to shave every little bit off of it. Um, every piece of equipment, everything that we're looking at, we're trying to reduce the amount of time it takes for someone to see the other side because everything is a problem for us because um, we're trying to oftentimes live in less than, you know, 50 milliseconds round uh, each way, less than 100 milliseconds round trip between two people that might be hundreds or, or a thousand miles away. And and so we genlock stuff to make sure that we're not wasting any any milliseconds on simple reframe uh, resynchronization. Uh, next question. And it's from Zach Stallsmith from Chautauqua, New York. I'm looking for a hardware controller that can control two PTZ cams on my network, as well as the T-Bar and inputs and vMix. Good, yeah. There's there's definitely a couple of different ways to skin this cat. Uh, the, the best and most elegant way is Scarhoy. Uh, that's S-K-A-A-R-H-O-J.com. Uh, they have a tremendous amount of options for you, and they're probably one of the better hardware-based. But it is a software layer that's running on it, but it is one of the more reliable and broadcast uh, 
oriented type companies. Uh, the next step after that probably would be central control with a TIST, uh, TYST controller. The 1500 is a favorite one of ours. It uses MIDI to communicate to central control. Central control then communicates to the destinations and that could be PTZs or that could be the, uh, the actual hardware switcher uh, or software switcher in your case with the VMIX. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, if you're in just local, needing that on the local network, uh, vMix does have PTZ control capabilities. I've gone so far down as to use an Xbox controller at my church, and I mapped the Xbox controller into vMix, which then allowed me to switch cameras, switch inputs, and it was just two PTZs in the sanctuary, so it was relatively low impact, and it was really easy to get volunteers to help from the kids at that point in time because they was like, hey, you're playing a game over there? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure I am. Here, let me show you how. You know, the funny thing is, is that we, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I, what I was amazed by is I had a, uh, we generally don't cut moving cameras with a PTZ controller. Like, I just don't like it. I don't, I feel like it's never as good as the camera operator. And and I feel like, you know, so I get, I pre-program things and we move them around and we get them to where we go, but we just cut and you just see lots of straight cuts and we don't, we don't do pans and so on and so forth. And we were doing a show in New York and I noticed that the camera was panning. I was like, I don't think we had a camera operator in the center camera. And, uh, and I looked over and my, uh, my, the person we had hired, which was not a camera operator, it was just someone that we had available to us. Now I figured, oh, we'll put them on the PTZs. We'll be okay. It's a pretty simple show. And he's panning back and forth with the, with the person. And I said, how, 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 and they're nice. I mean, these are, these were the Sony's I think at the time with Sony, uh, BRC 900s. And I was like, how are you doing that? And he's like, oh, the con this controller is so much better than an Xbox. <laughs> like, you know, like it's just, you know, this thing is amazing. And I realized that from then on, we started looking for gamers to do our PTZs because we realized they're so used to the twitchy, um, uh, the, the twitchy joysticks that the, and camera operators complain incessantly about the PTZs. They're like, oh, this isn't as good as a camera, blah, 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 blah. And then the camera, the, the, when you bring in gamers, they're like, this is amazing. You know, so it's uh, yeah, good, Jeff. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And yes, I, I did that in my sports company. Um, the problem I have is the gamers don't understand smooth camera moves. I can mm. teach a camera operator that's used to using a pair of sticks and a, and a, and a, a nice pan bar setup. I could teach them to be smooth, even right. they just have it's muscle memory changing that muscle memory. But yeah. what I what I can't stand is the Xbox guys or, or gamer guys that are making a move and then they're adjusting it at the end. Yeah. Just as they get all twitchy and everything. And so I had to unlearn a lot of habits that they would have because to them in the games, it doesn't matter. They don't care. Well, the, the, the funny thing is, is that we... Um... Uh, I was trying to explain to somebody, we were, we were doing some stuff inside inside of a virtual environment. We put some cameras in there and everything else. And you can put in some game, if you work with the gaming company, you can put in what we call, you know, phantom cameras, which are, you know, they don't really exist in the Observers. game. Yeah. The end. But what we did is we took a camera and the, the, the controller, we tied it to a HTC, you know, so we put like a little thing on the front so that you could track the, the camera position. And we took the data from the camera. Um, from the zoom in, zoom in um, uh, focus. And we just gave them, we gave a regular camera operator that does sports um, a head and what the screen was the game. And uh, and then we had, we were tracking the position of the camera. This, we didn't have the the good stuff to track it. We just trapping, tracking the position of the camera, but but we, we were able to get the controllers for their zoom and focus. And we put them as one of the cameras 
into a game and just let them just do it as if they were doing football. And the, the partner came over, what is going on with that other, that one camera? It is so good. It looks so much better than all the other cameras. I'm like, it's a real camera operator that's simply covering your show. And, you know, and well, it had a blade that was dedicated to it. So it was just pumping video out of that, of that one blade. And I was like, if we could do this with all the camera operators, I'm like, that's really hard. Like we, we well, they stuck with the mouse. Like I was just like, because it was going to be expensive, you know, it was going to be gonna do a blade and a camera and a, this pseudo camera for everything. But I was like, that's how you make a real show out of your games. You know, not this like weird game thing that you put on, the, <laughs> you know, that you stream. Anyway, so we'll see. So I agree with Jeff that real camera operators, there's a thousand hours or 10,000 hours that goes into framing that makes a difference. Next question. From Robert Sababity from Poland asking, Regarding managing an Osbot camera remotely, what has been your experience with connecting the Osbot UVC and USB remote dongle over a virtual private network? I didn't know that that it had some kind of remote virtual private network. I don't quite understand how that would work. Um, So unless you're talking about taking a USB dongle that's doing IP on both sides and then activating on the other side, I, I I don't think that would work. Um, but I don't know that for a fact. So um, I will say that the Obsbot controls are a little frustrating for me. Like the ones that are that come with it, the software that comes with it is, I, I did get an Obsbot, you know, to um, to compare to the to the link, and I haven't used it for any productions. <laughs> I still go back to the link. Um, so you know, like I, either, and that's because the software on the link side is better than Obsbot, even though it doesn't have. I was excited about the Obsbot because it had an API, and so I went down that path, but. Um, I, a, I haven't been able to utilize the API yet. I just haven't had time. And B, um, the Obsbot software, at least on the Mac, is really quirky and buggy and difficult. So um, next question. Ian Alford from, I'm sorry, don't know where he's from. How can you use one of Stream Deck to perform actions across multiple Mac computers? Go ahead, Nigel. So I've never managed to make the Stream Deck software do this, but I have managed to make the Companion software do this. So I uh, install Companion, uh, and I use a piece of software called the Vicreo, V-I-C-R-E-O Lister. And I run that on both machines, and I can, with Companion, send instructions from one machine to the other. And I found that a very efficient way, as long as you remember to keep all of your IP addresses linked. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I was going to suggest the same thing, either companion or central control. Central control uh, is a very easy way of doing it. You're not using the actual Stream Deck software with central control. You're actually using the Stream Deck as a device into central control, which then allows you to move it to output to wherever you need to. Vicrio is great to send uh, keyboard shortcuts if that's what you're limited to. But if you have certain actions that can be more API-based, and they are a part of the pieces that are, uh, which are many pieces in central control or companion, I would go that route versus sending keyboard shortcuts. Uh, they're not quite, especially if you need simultaneous control. Uh, Joe did a, a demo and it was actually controlling eight different vMix machines that were all doing exactly the same thing with multiple destinations. And that's ideal for, for doing, uh, like if you needed translations or multiple outputs to different regions. So uh, there's a couple of different ways to do it. It just depends on what software and what devices you're trying to control. 
I have to admit that the the reason I mean, there's definitely many valid reasons to control multiple computers with one Stream Deck. Uh, I actually use the Stream Decks to allow me to not have to do that. So I have different Stream Decks. I have a Stream Deck over here that's controlling one computer. I have a Stream Deck over here that controls another computer. I have another Stream Deck over here that has another input for another computer. And so to me, the Stream Decks mean I don't have to figure out where my try where my keyboard's going because the operations that I need from that computer for whatever I'm doing are connected to those stream decks. And so that's another way to think about it is because I think of my computers, I have a lot of Mac minis on my desk. I think of them, each one of them as an appliance that does a certain thing. So um, that's a different, just a slightly different way to think about it. Uh, Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has a question. Is there a way to composite VR video 1080 in Resolve Studio where the main video 4 to 3 or 16 to 9 can be seen with mobile and other photos or videos in wings, stage left, stage right, viewed with mobile swinging left and right to reveal more content? I go ahead, Bill. Yeah, there's probably a way to do that. I would do some research under, we used to call this pan and scan. It's taking a picture uh, on the main thing. And then if you have something else and you want to be able to reveal more of it, you take your point of view and you move it over. Occasionally, you have to blow up the original content to be able to pan and scan it. Sometimes you're working with old SD content. And when you say 4.3, this kind of leads me in that direction. Blowing it up so you can do a pan and scan sometimes leads you to so little resolution. that It's not a good thing to do. But if you have enough resolution in the beginning, in the main content, doing a pan and scan over the top of it can be useful there. Yeah, there. I, I don't know. I haven't done any uh, immersive work inside of Resolve. I think that there's some stereo stuff there that I haven't actually tried any kind of 180 or 360. Final Cut and Premiere both have tools that will do that. And so you basically put that into a sphere and then you can kind of work inside of that sphere back and forth. So basically you have a virtual camera that basically puts it into a into a half sphere for the 180 and you can pan back and forth to do that if that's what you're trying to do. So I'm assuming you've generated 180 content and what you want to be able to do is pan back and forth inside of your inside of your video app um, to see those things so that you could generate it. Now, if you're trying to do it live, there are players that will allow you to do that um, on, a, on, you know, there's web players that, that will actually give you that tool um, um, so that the person can be in a headset and turn back and forth or even use a mouse and turn back and forth. But if you're trying to do it for them from footage that you're exporting back out. Um, then you, um, then you would. I, I ha- again, I haven't done it in Resolve. I've done it in Final Cut. Um, I have not. I know that it's available in Premiere. <laughs> That's the levels of my knowledge. Uh, next question. Next question. It's coming in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Has anyone used the Rode NTH100M headset boom mic? Thoughts on the mic headset quality? And there's a link to it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, this is the. Uh, this is a it's about a hundred ninety dollar um, headset mic. It's got it's over the ear with a headset um, there. I mean, it would be interesting. They say it's broadcast quality. Um, I'm not sure what. Usually, when people say that, I'm like, well, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how that goes. The biggest problem with most of these headsets, and that that would be the interesting thing to look at, is really uh, the sibilance. So that's the thing that really sibilance and 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 the bass level and the lower tonal range. So most headsets have trouble with uh, the lower tonal range and you get a lot of sibilance when they're really close to, uh, you know, close out those little arms. And that happens even with good, you know, DPAs and and countrymen are more susceptible to that. But these headset mics, especially ones that people get, can get really bad really quickly. Um, And so, and, and I guess what I would say also is for me, I would have written it off immediately because it's over the years. So I don't, 
I won't use over the ears, you know, for for something that I'm doing um, on a broadcast. So it doesn't matter whether it's broadcast quality or not. As soon as it's over the years, I'm not going to use it. So I just, I, I would have, I probably haven't tested it because I, I, I probably saw it at some point in time. It looks familiar, um, but I wouldn't have put it on because it was going over my ears. Um, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm going to double down on what Alex said. Here's the problem. What you want in terms of speech reproduction is enough articulation and precision and clarity to make sure that people understand TH sounds and S's and all those things. And so often, uh, Pure communication solutions kind of crank up those frequencies so that everything comes through clearly. And what Alex is describing where you can have it turned up so much that it becomes splashy or difficult to listen to over time. Uh, Part of the reason that really good microphones are expensive is because they handle those transients and that articulated sound very smoothly and in a very easy to listen to way. And less expensive mics tend to fall down in those areas. So I would be careful. Uh, do your recording on it. Listen back, but listen critically. And do things like put it through compression if you're going to do that for your final delivery. And make sure that that emphasizing of syllables doesn't reveal the weaknesses in the microphone. Yeah, go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things I, well, I haven't used them, um, a lot of the samples that I've listened to, it sounds pretty phenomenal for a headset mic. Um, for something like this, I would typically usually only recommend this for someone that's just kind of getting into podcasting and like doesn't have the like proper mic technique or needs to be able to just kind of throw something on and go. And I think it's like a good middle ground for something like that. Um, but yeah, I would definitely probably look into something yeah. a little bigger. Yeah, no, I, the only thing I would say is that, I mean, I, I am interested. One thing that's interesting about it is they um, uh, they sell you a mic for this for $189. Be clear that what they say is the professional version of the mic is another $60 on top of that. So so they, there's another, yes. uh, you can pull the mic out and put a different one in that that is supposed to be even better than the first one, um, which would be really interesting. I will say that looking at it a little bit longer for like, so for instance, for the gray matter dot show that we do, I can actually set, see sending this out because the video is really a service to the live members. Um, we don't publish it. And being able to just send somebody a headset that they can put on that's going to sound good for what we're doing. Um, we're using MV7s right now, but getting them to figure out where to put them on their desk and how to keep talking into them and how to not have plosives. Um, we might be, you know, I was looking at, I was thinking about this, as I said, oh, I'm not going to use it to thinking, eh, maybe I should get yeah. one. Tested. Ha- having also <laughs> so. sent out a handful of, uh, remote podcast kits, I am in that same kind of boat. And that's something I was thinking about all the time. The amount of times I would get on to set someone up with an MV7 and, you know, they reach out a frame and grab it and you're like, no, 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 that needs to come right, right in the frame. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I was looking at, um, I've even been thinking about sending broadcast mics out, like the the ones I was looking at. I was watching uh, the game last night, which was amazing. Um, the Monday Night Football game, which was a nice. really good game last night. Um, it was just like the two best teams. And so you get to watch like two really good teams do really good things. It's, it's fun to watch. Um, and uh, but um, the uh, but I was watching them and they were wearing headsets, you know, Troy Aikman and, and uh, I can't think of the other guy's name. But um, we're watching the um, – uh, Joe Buck, right? Joe Buck is the other person. And they have these broadcast headsets. And I was like, I can just send those out and give them a, a converter uh, to really make it sound as good as possible to make that work because it's been a little bit of a challenge. The problem with the Countryman and even even this one, which I'm still like hemming and hawing over, this is the the one that had someone had the Kimura, Kimura 
um, that someone had recommended and I'm testing it right now. The problem with this one, it, it's really nice. It's very low profile, but you have to be kind of a pro to use it because it's got a lot of, I can't send this to a, a regular person because it's got too much handling noise. If it touches anything, you can hear it loudly. And so, um, so anyway, so I think that, you know, over the ears could make sense to send to somebody. If I was doing broadcasts on a regular basis, I probably wouldn't do it. Um, next question. From Guy Cochran in Seattle, USA, and right here in our panel, is there a less expensive telemetrics-type device for side-to-side repeatable movements across a large area? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I see Jeff smiling because he knows what I'm better to show. So we were trying to figure out a poor man's way of getting a camera across a large area, across a couple pieces of truss. How far is that area, Jeff? How far is large? That's the bigger question. 30 feet, I believe, in this, in this uh, example. It's forty, yeah, forty, 40 on the on the on the full. For to, to go, are you talking linear? Linear? It, which project are we talking about? Because there's linear. We've done rail cams. I, I my rail cam setup is forty feet, uh, but yeah, we've done. I've had others that have been done for us that were like 120, 150 feet, and that was like way down there. That was fun. So for this project, uh, we found the poor man's way of doing it. Uh, the camera is an FX6 uh, DJI Ronin with a uh, RavenEye for auto tracking. The device that uh, we chose for this to get this kind of look here, just so that we can get some additional, you know, copyright strikes. <laughs> this is a, a cable cam ProAim uh, Skywalker. So this is what it looks like. And you mount the DJI Ronin underneath and you can control it with these uh RC type controls. It takes a big old battery and this is a synthetic cable. And uh, so this is actually one of Noah's projects. And, and we, uh, I was just down there in LA last week experimenting with the thing and you can see it moving across and we got auto tracking working with that uh, unit. So now who makes pretty who cool. Makes you the, can set it in and out points. Cam? Who makes the cable yeah, it's, it's sky. It's called sky. Uh, I'll put a link in the chat, but Pro basically Aim. it's this one here. Pro aim Skywalker pro cinema mm. camera. So it's mm. 2300 bucks. And for those of you on the black Friday deal, look, uh, radar, there is, uh, there is some kind of black Friday deal. Uh, I'll put a link, but yeah, 2300 bucks. I'm thinking about buying one for myself, depending on how well this works out. The case is mammoth. I was like, what that it's just huge mm. because the, the reels well, it's got of, everything in it to ship the reels of, of cable and all. I, I, when I first saw the case, I, I worked with Noah on another event in Austin for, for Tesla. And that this was, he, he just got it and was like, Hey, can you put this together for me? I'm like, okay. Cause I have a, I have a dactyl cam, which is a different manufacturer, uh, but it's a smaller version made for more lightweight cameras. And uh, it was, it was massive. When I saw with the case, I was like, oh, really? Uh, but I, I've actually used the the Bigger Brother dactyl cam, which is uh, phenomenal. You put a Newton head on it, uh, which are really high-end heads. And uh, it, it, you get what you pay for. Uh, those are starting at around 10 grand. Uh, and you definitely get what you get. But you could also do 40, 50 miles an hour with it, which is amazing to get some really great off-road shots. And uh, especially like that shot going through the, the woods, if you were doing some parallel shots of, uh, of a motorcycle running through the woods or something like that, it's just, it's amazing, uh, the capabilities. What I'm concerned about is, is, of course, how slow can it go and be smooth? Because most of the shots we use that for fast. There are, are medium to fast, uh, but my, that's going to be our biggest challenge on this thing that we're doing together. Uh, did you drive it, God? Were you able to to get the the feel yeah. of the the joystick and the movement and everything? 
yeah, we got to work in just as I was about to head out and uh, it was working really smoothly. I was impressed with that Raven Eye as well as how well it tracked because once we set those in and out points and we, we uh, drew a circle or a box around whoever it needed to track, it held. So I was, I was impressed and it just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. My, my concern, of course, is, is battery size. No, uh, $430 battery. Can we get a third one just in case? That's great. Next question. Laura Steele from uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. Has anyone tested the Magewell Ultra Encode AIO? Wondering if it's reliable as other Magewell interfaces and would expect it to outperform the WebPresenter 4K. Here you go, Jeff. Used it a lot. Love it. Great box. Uh, does it outperform? Absolutely. Yeah, it's got a lot more capabilities. Yeah, it's got a lot more flexibility. I mean, you know, definitely it's a lot more flexible than the than the uh, WebPresenter 4K. And we... We need to take a moment to do some research with the with the encoding of that's being used right now of pretty much all the black magic things we we found when we started using uh, the the ATEMs for compression that the crushing of blacks was not just for the UVC camera it was pretty much all the encoding and so we're you know we need a moment <laughs> before we get any more things that are encoding um you know, you know from black magic to test everything um to go through we're just concerned that there's some chip issues um that are there and so i would you know i would we'll, we'll probably take a moment just to just to test that and and get some signals some test signals through that we can you know reliably compare um so so stay tuned for that um but but i would say that the, the major stuff that i've used has been really top notch it's they came, you know, I've, I've been doing this long enough that you, I was thinking about this with Scarhoy. They, Scarhoy felt like it dropped off the back of a truck 12 years ago when we were, when we were first working with them. It felt like some guy was like, and I think they were putting them together in their garage. And now it's like this super refined, like you go to the, see their booths and you, and you see what they're building and it's just super powerful. Same thing with Magewell. When I started using Magewells, they were like the backup to the black, black magic stuff. And they, and they were these dork, you know, like dinky little, uh, uh, little converters that we would use for SDI to, to USB. And they've really built an incredible platform of, of tools, you know, over the last decade. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing. So, uh, and a lot of the stuff, I haven't used this specifically looking at it on the webpage. It looks very impressive. Um, you know, I, for me, I, I'm curious, like, hey, does it do 10-bit? Does it do these things? I don't know if it does, but, but it does do a lot of things that look pretty good. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I'm looking in the chat, John Wallace and Mick, you're saying that this show's running on the uh, Talon Osprey uh, 4K, the SE encoders, which I've found also to be really just rock solid. I have some other Majewell devices here that are 4K for NDI, and they're solid as well. I know Jeff uses a lot of the, the Majewell uh, devices as well. They've uh, implemented their, their cloud um, handling for multiple devices that's way above anybody else that I've seen. I mean, Epifan has some nice stuff that works well, but Majewell is just, uh, just a little notch up ahead of these guys. Yep. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I think exactly what, what Guy said about the the interface and, and the management side. To me, that makes all the difference in the world. As long as the, the base features are there, they're what you need. But the ability for me just to fire up and I can see all my trucks, I can see every Majewell device that's on all my trucks, and I can control any of them and make them do whatever I need. That's a huge, I work remotely. So that's a huge win for me. And even on site, the guys are just like, oh, look, is the server on? I'm like, yeah. And like, okay, I can't find it because I'm using DHCP. Can't find the IP address to talk directly to that device. With the Majorwell Cloud, you just log in and there it is, poof, and you've got control of it. So the software layer and the control layer is also just as important to me as the 
capabilities of the device itself. Next question. Robert Green from Los Angeles, California. How should a multi-camera 60-minute style interview change with the new media style of looking directly in the camera? Go ahead, Bill. Well, look, I think this is my opinion. There are two different things. Number one, on the strain on, you are engaged with the person who's doing the interview. And I think that can be very powerful. The look aside, you are observing the person being interviewed. And those two things can both be very valuable. In fact, I'm noticing a lot now with the hostage situation that the world is going through, uh, the families, particularly of the people who are held hostage, I will often see a two-shot where the mom and dad of whoever's being held, one of them will be directly speaking to the camera for a patient. That is incredibly powerful. But as I watch the other person, they are not making eye contact. And that is equally, and in some cases, more powerful because you can almost see that they can't even make eye contact because they're going through such stress and pain. So I think it's an aesthetic choice whether you decide to let that person be observed or let that person be directly participatory and it's piece by piece, depending on what the content is. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with Bill. I think that they're not going to change anything at 60 minutes because generally you have the interviewer, the person that they're looking at, until they want to address the camera. And make sure you do that now. You know, that kind of thing. The difference is that you're talking to the person that's asking the questions, the producer, and now you're talking to the audience. Go ahead, so not normally I'm, done. Yeah, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think 60 Minutes is an example of media of the past, not media of the future. I don't think there's anything you're going to do to fix 60 Minutes, quite frankly, because I think it's a, it's, a, it's a dying format that's as much about the ego of the interviewer as it is about a search for content. I think if you want a more interesting look at people like Chris Williamson, some of those people on YouTube who can manage to put on a two-hour show, which I'm absolutely okay to look at, and they're not doing, they're looking at each other, they're engaged in the conversation, they're clearly multi-camera shoots to break up the image. But I think it, it's about the purpose of the interview. And when you find someone where the purpose of the interview is really communicating and learning, then you get absorbed in the content. The 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 part that really get, takes, like, that I have to admit, I laugh at, is when they bring somebody in over a laptop, like they're going to interview them obviously over Zoom, they go through all kinds of acrobatics to show that the person was talking on their computer to the over Zoom. That that's the way they did the interview. And they have a over the cam over the computer shot with the, sh you see the top of the laptop and they're looking down and they're like, we're going to, I mean, the amount of work that they went through to do that is kind of amazing, you know, as opposed to like, I have been doing Skype and and Google and or Google Hangouts and Zoom interviews for you know fifteen years now, <laughs> like you know, and it's just I can't. I've gotten to the point where I I almost turn it off if I see that. No, sixty minutes probably does it better than anyone else because they get those cameras right over top of someone's shoulder, so that they're it's almost right on you know on that on that process. But I think that the over the shoulder, the off to the off to the angle in five to ten years. 10 years because nothing goes as fast as I think it will. But uh, five to 10 years, that will be almost gone. Like it just won't, like in interview shows, you'll never see an, over, uh, an off, off camera view because, because of what we're doing here. Because of the fact that we are looking at people every day in every meeting, it's a straight on shot, you know, um, that, you're, 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 that, that idea is going away. I don't even like cut cutaways anymore. Like I, when someone cuts away, I auto automatically know that they're cutting around something you know, and so I don't even like the side shots anymore. Like I just feel like, and we're so used to jump cuts from social media. I, I'm like jump cut it or just put a, put a, a graphic over it, but I don't, 
want a second camera anymore. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, it's almost uh, as you describe it, uh, when they do the over-the-shoulder shot, they're at uh, 60 minutes of saying, don't blame us for the quality of video. He's talking in a way or she's talking into a uh, laptop. Yeah, And that's exactly. why the audio sounds bad. But it just doesn't have to be that way. Like, you know, just and it's and they obviously they, when you look at it, they obviously sent somebody over there to shoot that. They they went they sent somebody over to shoot the fact that they weren't shooting it like it's. It's very confusing for me. Uh, anyway, uh, go ahead. Uh, next question. Next question is from Mark Sanderson in Chesterfield, UK. It's a QR question. And uh, Mark asks, I'm trying to put together a totally battery powered streaming setup, purely amateur use. Tech Condo used a Rode DC USB 1 made for a Rodecaster Pro to power an ATEM. Has anyone tried this with either an ATEM or a Rodecaster Pro? Uh, here's what I would say if you wanted total battery powered. I wouldn't do all the thing. I wouldn't convert or try to figure out how to make every piece of device work. I would just get a UPS. So, you know, just get a, get a big battery or get a Jackery. Um, so get a Jackery or a, you know, a big Jackery will run your system for a long time. Um, or, a, or you get a, a UPS. Um, what we've done when we needed batteries, we've gotten the APS uh, 1500 uh, VA versions of those. And then we take them apart and we take the little beeper out of it. And then we, that's a battery. <laughs> it's a battery operated version of that. And it'll tell us how long it's going to last. And it'll do all those things. It just doesn't make all that annoying, annoying noise. But we put, big, we put a big thing on it that says, no beep like it, there's like the, you'll see these big pieces of tape on the front of them saying no beep which means you can't really use them as a backup you know you're, you're not going to use them as a true backup anymore that is a battery um that you can look down at it's not going to beep anymore because you don't want it to do that but that's that's how we do that um yeah go ahead jeff i was going to suggest the jackery route myself yeah. it's just i have the the uh what are these ebl so it's a offshoot uh, or you know generic version it's lithium-ion battery with a all it is is a lithium-ion battery with an inverter on it um but I, we've got probably a dozen of them now uh from doing things on the side of mountains to going on races that we don't want to just bring out a, a and have to worry about refueling a gas generator um because they will last not near as long as these battery packs will yeah i just highly suggest that route simpler hey go bill and because things are getting more power sippy and less power hungry, particularly things like small cameras or your audio stuff, I've got a couple of these 2400 milliamp hour anchor kind of big guys that if I have something that doesn't have a particular draw, this will last two days on it. Now, if I'm trying to recharge a laptop, that's not true. It'll it'll probably three quarters of the way refill my laptop if I'm in the field. But I find these really useful, too. And battery technology keeps getting smaller and more power dense as we go. So there's some uses. Next question. Stephen Montagna from Madison, Wisconsin, has a question. Pointers for Final Cut Pro Project Backup when working on episodic content. The library is the overarching container, but each episode is its own event. Strategies for backing up without unnecessary data duplication. For example, shared titles, intro, etc. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, so one of the great things with Final Cut when I started editing in it years ago is you can just import everything to your library file. But I would say if you're going to be doing a lot of backup of episodic content, you can turn off that copy to library function and do all of your data management outside of Final Cut and then just use Final Cut to reference back to those files. So you're not having to create multiple copies of everything. You just reference those files in the folder and then each episode you do your data management outside of it. Um, and I think 
everything should link up pretty quickly. And if not, Final Cut has some pretty great tools for reconnecting it all. Good, Bill. Yeah, everything in Final Cut is metadata expressed against virtual footage pools. And if you take a little time to learn what is fundamental, what is irreplaceable, and what is calculated by the program, yes, your camera originals are going to be something you want to sequester and back up and multiple backup. But a lot of what happens in the program is that metadata expressing itself against that original program and calculating something new. That can all be recalculated. Uh, if you want to learn some more, do research up under the term lean library in Final Cut. There'll be a lot of people who have talked about that. There'll be a lot of YouTube videos. And a lean library is working to cut down what you actually have to back up to the least amount that respects the fact that everything else, if you give it a little time, can be recalculated. But you want to make sure you protect the things that can't be easily recalculated. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Wurzburg, Germany asks, can a USB Pre 2 device serve as an audio interface to bring audio from computer A to computer, excuse me, computer B to computer A and simultaneously be a monitor speaker controller for computer A? Uh, no. Uh, well, maybe. I mean, it would be, you're, you're asking something to, what, what I have a, I have a mix pre here, <laughs> like a, uh, or a USB pre here. Um, you would use you would typically use the audio from USB the audio from B to A you might use as a mix pre to go out analog out back into a you know mix pre or something that's how I use this one is this is like my I need to plug this computer in I don't have time to figure it out and loop back and a whole bunch of other things I'm just going to plug it into this computer and I've got a I got a solid output from my, that computer and I run it into my input in my mix pre and then it just works you know and so that's the um, that's how I use the USB pre, um, to, to do this, but I can't take the audio from the, I don't think I can, t it would be difficult. It would not be the best way to do this, to take the audio out of USB a and monitor and send it out of the outputs. You probably could do it using the aux in, and then, you know, there's a lot of weird routing that you could do to do that. I wouldn't recommend it. So I think that you want, you know, you don't want to do both of those things at the same time with that piece of hardware. Cause it's, it's, it's a, its tenancy is going to be with computer B because that's what you're outputting audio from. So that, that'd be my suggestion there. Um, it's a great box though. <laughs> so I, I, I gave away a lot of, I had at one point I had uh, over 60 of them uh, that we would use for, it was just like, it was in every box everywhere. It was just, it's the, just the best. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. Guy, how do you like the X-Real goggles? Are they as immersive as they say they are? And can they connect to an iPhone 14 plus? good guy yeah they're pretty immersive i'm i'm digging them more for entertainment use than production use i thought that i would use them more for business i bought them in anticipation of the apple vision pro uh same back a few years ago when microsoft came out with with their uh, hololens i bought that in anticipation of using them for production or figuring out how to create content like we're looking at creating lights and we're trying to figure out where would you put these lights in a 360 environment uh are we gonna have to uh, we're just trying to figure things out. So we, we got ahead of the, the market and same with these. I was trying to just get ahead of the market and figure out what's coming down the pike. And um, so far, um, yeah, more for entertainment. But here's your, to answer your question, here's the adapter that you'll need. If you have the 14, this is called the X-Real adapter. Uh, you'll need the uh, standard Apple adapter that's lightning to HDMI. And then this is the $49 uh, X-Real adapter. And then that plugs into the goggles. And it does definitely make it more immersive if you uh, put the the black um, 
uh, cap over the top. The new ones, you don't need that. Uh, they actually have it built in. The shutters are built in. So that's uh, one of the reasons to get one of the newer ones. If you're looking at buying them as the shutters are built in, you don't have to. It looks pretty funny when you... Here, I'll just demonstrate to look funny. So if, if you're on the plane like I was yesterday, this is how I looked. So, you know, you're, you're looking like... <laughs> so, a blind man. All right. So, there you go, do you, Doug. And do you like them on the plane? They're amazing on the plane. Yeah, that's, that, that's my big plan is to use them on the plane. I, I was almost yeah. going to send them back because I'm like, I'm not using them that often. But I was like, eh, but on the plane, they'll be great. You know, yeah, especially, especially if, if you have some AirPod maxes because then you're just in I, your own little world. I mean, you, you push the, the noise cancellation and beep, everything goes away. And it's pretty amazing. Yeah, on my last COVID, you know, COVID-ation, <laughs> COVID vacation, um, on my last COVID-ation, I, ha- I was laying in the bed and I watched all of the new Mission Impossible with my Air Maxes and the, and the, and the, uh, and the, the Unreals or X-Reels and it was great, you know, and so that's what I could do. And so, uh, cause I was, uh, I couldn't go down to the house, go to the rest of the house. And so, um, anyway, yeah, so I think that they're, uh, they are, uh, they're pretty impressive for that. So yeah, and you can't watch any of the videos from YouTube though, like, or any, any of the, a lot of the stuff is all copywritten. So I'm sorry, YouTube TV. If you go to YouTube, you always see is black. <laughs> I kind of wanted to watch a football game, uh, but you can watch the Apple, like stuff that you've bought. Um, next question. By the way, I think you need to write down covation. That's a new word right there with confabulator. <laughs> yeah. uh, next question in from Eduardo Augustine in Panama City, Panama. Now that we went through a taste of your frame composition class, how is that choreographed uh, for the camera operator to achieve these? And are, th- are those directed live? Not directed live. Every one of those is taken one at a time. Like they take it's, every shot that you saw there is probably that's probably a week of work, maybe maybe more, maybe a couple of weeks of work. It was weeks and weeks and weeks of choreo- choreography for the for the martial arts, and then they go in and they have storyboards for every single every one of those shots is designed storyboards, and then there's oftentimes animatics that we use a computer program to show exactly what we want, and then we cut it all together and see how it feels because it's really expensive to have the crew there, and then we and then you sit down and you spend twenty five to fifty thousand dollars a day to shoot it. Um, a lot of that was shot with a um, those are high speed cameras for the shoots, and if you look very closely you'll notice that the quality of the image changes when it goes to high speed because grainier um but the um uh but those are all it's it's one shot at a time like with one camera while while it feels like a scene it's all shot in pieces and then brought brought together through the magic of editing next question next one in from ronnie hofsoy from tromso norway when will we do a multicam recording using our many sony cameras without genlog what is the preferred method to at least have some kind of sync tentacle or anything similar or maybe better out there or just use a digital or even physical clapper all right go ahead mitchell i would i would start with a clapper i mean that's a good place to start but um uh jam sync is a at least a tried and true method to make sure all the cameras at the beginning of the uh, of the shoot if it's a shorter one uh if it's a long-term shoot then you better have some type of uh genlock connection but uh, a clapper can sometimes fix a multitude of problems good bill Depends on your post workflow entirely and what software you're using. I'd use Final Cut. And what I've learned is that I just have to know two things. I have to know which camera is this shot from. And then I have to have something where I can get even reasonably close. Literally, for me, swinging my arm from high to low. If I can get anywhere close to equal distance, even if it's a little off, the software will take care in post of syncing the rest of it using... um, the tools inside of there. 
particularly if you supply audio to all of them, because they're all pretty good at doing audio match. So um, you don't need as much if you're doing post-production. Genlock and those kind of things are, are tremendously useful in live stuff. But afterwards, they're just more sophisticated tools now for syncing things up for post. I go ahead, Brandon. Oh, can't hear you, Brandon. Unmute. There we go. Uh, I actually got to utilize a really cool trick this year. Um, so if you have, I shoot on the Sony FX3, um, the mobile app that comes with them, you can use that to Bluetooth sync time of day, time code into all of your cameras. And you can do it across as many cameras oh, wow. as you want. Um, and so while, you know, I would recommend like a tentacle or some sort of time code device to keep things very accurate, if you're in a pinch and you need to sync something across more than two cameras um, that you don't have good audio on, uh, that time of day Bluetooth sync is pretty phenomenal. They there also make a uh, cable that'll work with your FX3 that'll get yes. time code into it. Yep. Guy? Yeah, here's the Deity uh, little TC1. So these have little hot shoes and you can make one uh, a master device and or a leader and then the rest can be followers and then you just get the different cables for different devices. If you're using an audio recorder, you can use that for um, the leader as well. But yeah, these are pretty handy and you can get uh, Limo to 3.5 or because uh, that's how this the audio, the IO comes out of these is uh, that little IO box right there. And then inside this kit, so this is a three up kit right here. So there's three inside of this box and they run, I think it's about uh, 24 hours. Um, and they'll maintain perfect sync, frame app, accurate sync, and that's the DoD TC one. How much does that cost? I believe it's about five hundred bucks for the that's kit. It's great. great. Here you go, Bill. Just a caveat. I remember I've told this story before, but we did a test once on one of my lectures where I had people with various cell phone providers talk, you know, just hold up their hands and drop them when they hit the top of the hour. I was shocked at how far off various cell providers are in terms of the time hacks they send to the phone. So if you're going to do that using your phone or Bluetooth or something like that, try to sync everybody to the same phone at least. Yeah. So I probably, the first 10 years of my production experience of doing live, doing shows that we were going to cut together later, not live, but just shows. Probably did almost 2,000 shows and um, didn't have any time code or gen lock. <laughs> like what we did was we'd have someone just go like this, just clap, and, and we'd have everybody like pull together, look at this one person, make sure that everybody can see them and clap. And then the other thing we would do is pull, a, you know, close the slate. So that would be another one that we would use. And then another one we did, we, we used to joke it was called the mini slate because it was just, it just felt less weird. And we'd have people just look at all the cameras and go like this. And that would be enough for us to visually just grab all of the, you know, know that all the cameras were in the same place before we started shooting that segment or that piece that we were doing. And we mostly used audio to just sync it up. And you get really good at using, as long as there's wild audio on the cameras, or if you can feed the, the cameras with the actual audio, if they were on sticks, we would oftentimes feed them a output from the, our mixer to, to make sure that one of the channels, one channel was usually kept as as wild audio from, you know, so one channel of the camera and the other camera was XLR in or something like that. And that just allowed us to, I mean, our, we were doing these XL ones, I think at the time when we were doing a lot of this stuff and, um, it was fine. Like it, it, it I mean, I, I would always prefer time code now, um, you know, especially with the complexity that we do at this point, but, but we were able to do an awful lot without it. Um, next question. Next one in from Brody Brazil from Danville, California. I'd like to connect an Xfinity cable box into my ATEM Extreme via HDMI, but I'm pretty sure it's the copyright protection that's not letting a signal pass. Is there a specific device and workaround for this? I go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yes, there is. Um, you can buy these little boxes. Uh, they're called EDIDs or EDIDs uh, that basically fool the uh, HDMI thinking it's talking to a monitor or a device that uh, might be okay. It seems that, that I've found that if you buy them in the U.S., uh, they still block the HDMI, the handshaking. Um, but if you buy a foreign version uh, from some other country, um, it seems like they let that go through. Um, they're not really allowed to advertise that that's what it's used for. But you have to, you might have to buy a couple just to get it right. Yeah, that's a company uh, out of out of China called Avu A V U E, and they have a bug that <laughs> they can handshake the the HDMI and they'll spit out SDI. And if you put one next to each other, if you take go HDMI to SDI and SDI back to HDMI. Uh, you've, SDI doesn't carry any of that stuff. So it's just a matter of getting to an HDMI to SDI converter. Usually a less expensive converter from HDMI to SDI will do it um, as opposed to the more expensive ones because they're more worried about it. So um, so that's the, uh, that's, that's the way folks can, it's one of the ways that people get around that. All right. It was a good day. It's good. A lot of, a lot of good questions, a lot of good discussion. Great pain. Great panel today. Thanks to the panel. We can't do this without you. Um, it was really good, uh, really good discussion with all of you. I think we're, I think we're having a good week. It's just, just, just Q and A. Um, so, so thanks again to the panel for being on. Welcome, Brandon. Hopefully, we see you more often, uh, the, or often, isn't given that we hadn't seen you before. So, anyway, it's really, really good to have you on the panel. Um, and thanks to the rest of the panel for for being here. Uh, thanks to the producers for all the great questions. Uh, your questions went back to you. Um, so if you put it in with a QR code, it's going to go back and we're going to bring it back in tomorrow. If you put it in, uh, in uh, if you put it into Makana, we send them back to you. And if you go into Makana, you'll see a little hamburger up in the upper right. You can click on it and resubmit that question. We realize we don't talk about that enough because I think people feel like their question just went away, but it didn't go away. It went back to you. You can put it back in. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so your questions have gone back to you. You can put them in tomorrow, and we'll get to all. We'll get to as many as we can tomorrow. Um, so, uh, so definitely uh, throw those questions back in. We really appreciate everybody's contribution there. Uh, we also appreciate, of course, the incredible team that puts all of this together. There's the team that's throughout this holiday week is is cutting the show, uh, managing the development of the show, managing the day to day process of the show. We do it seven days a week. Every day, we have not missed a single day, including all the holidays that all of us individually have uh, since March 25th, uh, 2020. So it's been quite a while. So um, so anyway, just an incredible, incredible team that puts this all together. Quick reminder that, of course, we have the uh, the workshop today, uh, noon Pacific Standard Time, uh, Eastern, 3 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and I believe it's 7 o'clock, is that right, GMT, um, that's out there. Um, I can't, now that we're changing all these times, I can't ever keep that keep track of that. So anyway, but that is a great way if you're thinking about getting started with the panel, if you're thinking about get it, you want to learn how to be a reader or a or a host or just be a part of the panel, if you want to test your Zoom ISO, if you want to uh, learn a couple things about how the question systems work and everything else, it's a great, great time to learn all of those things. So um, so definitely jump into that. And, and, and again, a reminder that we will have the volunteer meeting still is going to be this Saturday at 9 a.m. So if you're interested in that, uh, sign up and make sure that there's a little form that goes out on the email that you can sign up if you want to be a volunteer. And we'll have a general meeting about that. Um, we traveled 78,000 miles. That's 126,000 kilometers. And that is 624 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Now I have to go check before Mac break and find out if anything has changed with OpenAI. Because it's just like, because <laughs> what nothing, time is it? <laughs> nothing big has happened for at least the last 18 hours. It's been really quiet this morning, really quiet. Yeah, I think everyone's trying to figure By out design. what's going to happen. There's a 
there's the machinations of does I mean because literally if I think that if if the board doesn't uh, the board I think still might be just doing this on purpose they're killing the company like they're just I, th I think that the board is they don't have a fiduciary duty to have the the board to have the company survive and I think that they may have decided oh, to kill the five hundred one c three part yeah they don't. yeah yeah right. so because because if if they don't step down and he doesn't come back it's over by January so anyway. Be interesting to see. All right.